Eagles Entertainment. This is Lane Johnson, and you're listening to the Eagles Insider Podcast with Dave Spadaro. Hi, Eagles everywhere, and welcome to the Eagles Insider Podcast, presented by Lincoln Financial Group, Eagles Insider Dave Spadaro. With you, we are one week away from the NFL starting its free agency period. And just to clarify the dates before we get into the podcast here, March 16th is when teams can start talking to agents, negotiating deals. They call it the unofficial yet official legal tampering window. A lot of fun there. That all sets the stage for March 18th. 4 p.m., the Eagles and the rest of the NFL begin the new calendar year. 2020 officially begins March 18th, 4 p.m., and with that, we'll find out the direction the Philadelphia Eagles will take in free agency. In this Eagles Insider podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about an Eagles cheerleader by the name of Kyle Tangway, who has had a golden opportunity, a dream come true in this offseason. Do you guys think he could be the next American Idol? And we're also going to explore the idea of Eagles everywhere and in a very difficult way, we're going to link the Philadelphia Eagles and the coronavirus. We all know how serious it is. There's one Eagles fan who's been very prominent in talking about his experience contracting the coronavirus. That comes your way in just a little bit. But first, let's get into the Meet the Coaches segment. Once again, a new Eagles coach joins us here on the Eagles Insider Podcast. And this time, it's new wide receivers coach Aaron Moorhead. Aaron Moorhead is the new Philadelphia Eagles wide receivers coach, and we welcome him here to the Eagles Insider Podcast, presented by Lincoln Financial Group. Aaron, nice to meet you. I appreciate you guys having me on. Um, so listen, let's let's start with, with you uh, as a football player in the NFL. If you were writing a scouting report on your game, what kind of receiver would you be? What, what, what would you say about yourself? Uh, that's a good question. I think uh, <laughs> right probably, probably first and foremost, you know, great length, um, had good catch radius, and, and had the ability to run enough. Look at this catch! Moorhead! Aaron Moorhead walks in for the score. Ladies and gentlemen, you are not going to see another catch like that in your lifetime. You'll see it plenty of times before you go to sleep tonight. Definitely had a good catch radius, and and it was tough, and 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 that's really what what my role was was to be to be the guy that played special teams, to be the guy that played, uh, and 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 was able to back up all the positions that need to be backed up. So, um, you know, when you have when you have two guys who are Hall of Famers, and and Brandon Stokely, who was who was arguably one of the top three slot receivers in the league at that point. Uh, you know, you better you better have your niche. And my niche was to come in and, uh, and understand all the spots and understand that you still had to have value within what you were doing, whether it was special teams or coming and filling a role if a guy was injured or something like that. So, but but definitely um, enjoyed my time in Indianapolis as a player and used a lot of that information to kind of propel me into coaching. And it's been great so far. University of Illinois didn't get drafted. Play five years in the NFL. Win a Super Bowl. Uh, a, um, why do you think you made it, Aaron, and others who were drafted, who were more highly acclaimed, didn't make it? Well, 
I mean, that's a pretty loaded question, to, to say the least. Um, I'm a very confident person. I have confidence in myself, confidence in my ability. So when I went undrafted, it didn't, it didn't bother me, maybe for one day. And I let it go and say, okay, well, this is time to go make a team. You know, I was a walk-on in, in, in high school, going into college. So um, it wasn't unfamiliar territory for me. It was, let's go prove it and go beat out guys, just like I did in college. When I had to go beat out scholarship players, I had to go do it again. And I went uh, to Indy and, and quickly um, understood what was going on. And that, that helped me because I knew all the positions going into camp. So when, I, when we got to training camp, I could go to anywhere I needed to go to, to understand what was going on in the offense. And, and so that allowed me to play early in preseason where other guys still didn't understand the offense completely. Um, and then, you know, as you go through it, it's going to boil down to, to do you make plays when plays present themselves and are you tough? And I think that I did that. Um, I was able to play special teams because of my length, because of my toughness. And then at the same time, um, you know, I think that that when the plays were there for me early on in my career, I made them. And um, when I when I was a young player, uh, we had some guys get hurt, and I played early and did a good job in a couple games that they had me play, and they knew I could play from then on. And then I had a couple years where no one got hurt, and I didn't pout, and I didn't do this, I didn't do that, I didn't make a spectacle of it. I just kept playing and kept playing and kept playing, and um, it was something that I think from a mental toughness standpoint, I never let things get too high or get too low. I just pushed on, and whatever was going on inside of football, outside of football, I let the ball be the ball, and... I do believe that the game is pure. And when you believe that and you live that, I love playing football. I love practice just like I love the games. When that energy comes out of you, I think you can play above your means sometimes. Do you think your childhood, you grew up the son of Emery Moorhead, longtime NFL tight end receiver, uh, Super Bowl champion. Um, how much did that, you didn't start playing football, I read, until you were in eighth grade? Yeah. You played soccer with Walter Payton, right? <laughs> is, that, is that true? Is that just a myth? Or yeah, that... no, his son. His son, yeah, his okay, son. son. We were the, we were, he's a his year son, younger right, than right, me. Right, right, yeah, and, and Jared, who's, Jared, a, who's yeah. a great uh, football player himself, you know, but he didn't start playing until he was in late in high school. And uh, he played soccer. He was a, he was a tremendous soccer player growing up. We, we played together, and um, but it was great for my hand-eye coordination. You know, kind of that foot speed and things like that that soccer does for you. But I didn't play. I played. Now we played a lot of street football and played in the park and things like that. And I was always really good, but did not play organized football until I was uh, twelve. My dad just said he didn't want me to get burnt out. He didn't want me to get to where I was midway through college and just was done and kind of tired of playing. And yeah, maybe I make it, maybe I don't, whatever. He wanted me to still have that love and passion for the sport. And he felt like, uh, the longer I was able to go without putting the pads on, the better off it would be where I was still playing it for fun and not playing it because someone made me do it. So that was the reason he did it. And I always kind of appreciated that because he always said it got to the point in eighth grade where you were bugging me about it so much I had to let you play. <laughs> so he knew it was time. Did you have, you were born in 1980. I think your father stopped playing in 1985. Uh, eight. Okay, so yeah. do you have memories of, of that? Yeah. I'm thinking Leslie, the story I read, Leslie yeah. Frazier was, had gotten hurt. Right. Who we all love. Leslie Frazier's name, by the way, every time I talk to coaches, his name keeps coming up. He coached here. Uh, Marquand knows him very well. I mean, yeah. he's a wonderful guy. But you, uh, do you have memories of your father playing in uh, the NFL? Yeah, I do. And Leslie Frazier recruited me to go to uh, University, University of Illinois. Illinois yeah. And Leslie was a guy that I've known my whole life. So Leslie's been a mentor to me all through my coaching career. And he was at the Colts uh, when, when I was there for a couple of years, too. So um, wonderful it's guy. pretty pretty amazing how our paths have crossed yeah. uh, throughout my life. So uh, but yeah, those times are unbelievable. You know, I mean, as a group of characters in that in that 
locker room and the coaching staff and and all those guys. I mean, but you remember those things. And, and you definitely knew who you were supposed to be around and who you weren't supposed to be around and which guys were a little crazier than others. But uh, that time was, was fun. And everybody in Chicago, because of the fan base, just like here, I mean, everybody in Chicago knew who the guys were. And, and you felt like because you were associated with that team that you were almost a part of it, even though you were just a little kid. You won a Super Bowl in Indianapolis. What was the feeling like? What was the game like? Um, describe the whole scene to me. That was fun. I mean, obviously, as you, as you go down to it, we, our, our big thing with, with uh, the Super Bowl was, was, was funny. We, we knew New England was our Achilles heel. and We beat them in the championship game in, a, in you know, kind of a crazy game, came back to win that game. But uh, when we played Chicago, we knew if we played our game that we would really beat them. And, and, that, and that's, that's not a, a, a knock at Chicago. Chicago was a great team, and they were coached well and all those things, but we just knew we had, we had the matchups we wanted to beat that team. And we had played them the year before up in Chicago and beat them pretty good, and, and we just felt like if we could just not turn the ball over and play a sound game that we would, we would really probably be in pretty good shape. So it was a confidence going into that game that everybody on our team had, which you need. You know, it wasn't – Coach Dungey made the schedule very similar to when we were back in Indianapolis as far as prep, and so the schedule was pretty similar. And we, we went in there and just did what we did. We played a good game. Um, it, was, it was interesting. We were I was the third receiver that year going into the playoffs, and we ended up doing a lot of 12 personnel that game instead of 11. When it started raining, we started running the ball a lot more. And uh, so I went from probably having about 35 snaps, 40 snaps in the game to having like – you know, eight or nine snaps in the game. And, and you know, I'll, I'll never forget, I probably played as many special team snaps as I did offensive snaps or more probably because that's just how the game went. And it was, and it was, it was kind of validation of how much I tried to take special teams seriously over the course of my first three, four years in the NFL because you look at it in the biggest game of your life, you're playing just as many special teams or more special team snaps than you are on offense. And those snaps, you never know which is going to be the snaps that change a game a la Devin Hester's opening kickoff or touchdown could have swayed that game in so many different ways. Did you feel, Aaron, you know, wide receivers have this reputation. Did you feel that pressure? As a, Take us in, inside your head when you played. Is there that much pressure when you're playing wide receiver in the NFL? Not to be, quote, unquote, the diva, but, you know, the fans think you should catch every pass. Um, you score and you celebrate and you're looked at as kind of a – a showboat. I mean, what what was it like for you? All those extraneous factors that go into the game. Uh, you got to have fun playing this game now, and that's that's part of it. You're 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 out there. You're putting your body on the line every day, whether it's practice, games, whatever. So when it is game time, it's time to have some fun, and you got to enjoy it. You got to be you got to be present in the moment, but at the same time. We were a pretty workmanlike team. I mean, Peyton wasn't going to let you get too far out of pocket now. I mean, you could have some fun and do some things, but surely there wasn't going to be too much, you know, of extracurricular things on the offensive side of the ball because that's not what he wanted. And, and really, the pressure he put on you on a daily basis was nothing compared to, to or the, what the fans could try to give to you. I mean, he was so adamant every day of every single detail of how it had to be, why it had to be there, catching the football, running the right routes, blocking the right guys that, you know, Sundays came easy for us. So that was a, that was a really, um, it was a fun time and a great thing to learn at a young age from 22 to 27 when I was playing 
um, of how to be a pro. Are those lessons, Aaron, ones that you have <clears throat> carried with you into the coaching world? Oh, there's absolutely. You know, just the detail that it takes to be a winner. And when you start lacking in the details is when little things start to happen and little things turn into big things. And, and in our world, big things turn into losses. And, and losses accumulate and all of a sudden, you know, there's, there's major problems. So I think that as you see it, um, you have to be able to adjust on the fly. You have to be able to adapt and change and make sure that you're doing the things that you need to do to make sure that everybody understands exactly why they're doing the things they're doing, why it's important to the play, why it's important to the series, why it's important to the team all those good things and if you don't and you try to fix it after you may have been too late so as far as you might have already lost the game and now you're trying to play catch up so you know it's just it's just preemptive strikes a little bit college experience Virginia Tech Texas A&M Vanderbilt what was coaching in college like it's fun I mean you're, you're taking guys that are out of high school with dreams and aspirations you're taking uh, guys that are in college that have that have the same dreams and aspirations and trying to mold them into young men and then trying to mold them into really good football players and, you know, trying to get guys from a position from, you know, where they are to where they want to be. And, and that's something that's really important to us when you look at uh, just developing character and developing developing players. And that's that's what I've always prided myself on is trying to be a good role model, trying to be a guy that, that, that young people can look up to and a guy that – you know, especially for college guys, you're, a lot of those guys want to be NFL players. So you're looking at a guy who's been there, done it. Not, I didn't go the easy way. I was not a five-star recruit out of high school that got drafted in the first round. You know, I, I went the hard way. So if I could do it, you can do it. If you if you just kind of look at it and understand what I'm trying to tell you from on the surface, you can really once we get past that and we can dig into the depths of it, I think people understand it's coming from a really good place and coming from a place that, that really cares about the person and cares about their status as a player and cares about their status, you know, as a, as a, you know, as a person in the society. Recently here on the Eagles Insider Podcast, we had Doug Peterson, head coach on, and he talked about Aaron Moorhead and what he liked about Aaron and why he's here as the wide receivers coach. Aaron's a former wide receiver in this league. Uh, came from Vanderbilt, obviously. He is coaching wide receivers there. He's, he's been around some of the top. He's been around Peyton Manning um, in Indy. Uh, he's seen this league. He knows how to play in this league. Uh, he knows how to coach in this league. So I'm really excited about him and what he's done, not only in college, but also in his career as a, as a player. So, Aaron, what did you like about Doug Peterson when you met him? Well, what's not to like, first of all? I mean, he's a personable guy. You, uh, first, he's the first person when I got here that I went into his office and talked to him for, you know, we were in there for about 45 minutes and, and the conversation had to stop because we had other things to do. But I think had we not, we probably could still be sitting in there now. I mean, just talking about life and football and all these different things. And, and he, he really understands people. He understands football. And there's certain people you gravitate towards and there's certain people you, you kind of move away from. And, and Doug was a person that right away for me, I gravitated towards. And that made it, when I walked out of the building, I told my wife, I said, I could really see myself being here because you just look at the head coach and what he stands for and how and what he's about. And you just look and go, these are people that I get and people that I think they get me. And that, that, that to me, from a fit standpoint, is really important. I'm not sure how much fans understand the importance of the relationship between a position coach and a player. As a player, did you see your, your wide receivers coach as like the lifeline of your career, in a sense? I would say so. I mean, to, to a point where we still talk now, and 
I mean, you look at, you know, my position coach in college, we were we were close when I was there. And you know, there's highs and lows always with your position coach. There's, sure. There's a love-hate relationship. You spend more time with times, them than anybody, right? But but you you better know each other and you better know what makes each other tick and you better know how to communicate with each other. Because when it's all said and done in the fourth quarter of a game, you gotta be able to communicate in a way that's so effective that sometimes you don't even need to say anything. It's just maybe a hand signal or maybe a look or maybe something that where you you understand each other. To, to get things across that other people are never going to understand. And sometimes after a tough loss, who's the person that's coming up to you and giving you a hug? It's your position coach. Not the head coach always, not the, not the GM or not you know this guy or that guy. It's usually your position coach is the guy that, that has to kind of mend those wounds. And after a big win, everybody's coming up to you telling you a good job. But who's the person that's in your corner when there's something that's went wrong? And that's generally, in my opinion, the guys that you know are real people and not just the guys that are there when it's going well. How did you build trust as a player with your position coach in Indy? Well, I think Clyde Christensen was my position coach, and Clyde's a great human being now. And anybody that's met Clyde, kind of like Leslie Frazier, you just there's a genuine heart about him. When you talk to him, you know what he means, what he's saying. Um, and after having a lot of talks with him, just not, not about football, just about life, you know where he's coming from, you know how he was raised and the things that he values and stands for. And if they align with what mine were, which was really good, um, I, I always really valued his friendship and valued his mentorship. And there's a lot of things going through life. When you're 22 years old, you're thrust into the NFL. Well, where are you going to buy your first car? Are you going to buy your first house? Right? You're kind of walking through different relationships, whether it's a girlfriend that you might turn into a wife or you know, some sort of change in relationship or, or friends that you're meeting. Are you sure that's the type of person you want to be around? What about this guy over here? And those conversations we had and I think that 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 time when you're when you're making a lot of money you're young you think you know everything in the world you think you can do it all on your own having someone there to maybe challenge your opinion and not not challenge you in a negative way but challenge you in a positive way saying is it are you sure he was someone that I could go to with anything and I know he wasn't going to judge me or anything like that and that was important to me and I've kind of taken that on in my own role as I've started coaching. So you're dealing with men now, not college kids. Will that change the way you coach? I don't think so. I mean, I think you're, you're, you're definitely not going to be, you know, you don't, you don't have to be as, as in, in the way I want to put this is delicate, but you don't, there, there's a certain way you're going to coach a college kid because you know you have to get things across that you generally, now you're talking to a grown man, you don't have to talk to him that way. And you can say it in a different way that's going to get the same result where sometimes you need the college kids got to understand that, that, you know, I don't care what you did last night running around. I need you to handle this here. These guys already understand that, so it should be said and clear. But there's, there's guys that, that as, you're, as you're going around certain individuals, if they're, if they're pros and they know how to be pros, I think certain things can be said and not told to. You can just say it as a man and not have to really be, you know, that that kind of the presence doesn't have to be so negative. It can kind of be more of a more of a straight line. This is how it's going to get done, and this is why we're going to get it done and move on. This is their jobs. Yes, they don't have to worry about going to school, and they're not kids. Right, they're men. Um, what kind of receiver? What what works in the NFL, Aaron? What what kind of receivers do you want? Do you look for a certain body type? Well, I think that it's proven that a lot of different receivers work in the NFL. If you look at the top. Guys in the league right now, arguably, who are, you want to come up with your top 10, they're all different guys. They're all different speeds. They're all different shapes. They've got all different 
catch radiuses, all those things. I think it's just a matter of what the Philadelphia Eagles need and what what do we need at this point. And that's something that we'll go into draft and Howie will, uh, has has been has been great and, and we'll go in it with a plan and and we'll 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 execute that plan. And I think that as you look at guys, you know, the biggest thing is, you know, can they catch? Can they run and are they tough? And I think if they if they check those three boxes, I think you're 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 working with a really uh, a, a good player that's got some tools, the ability to 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 grow as a as a football player. And there's no better jump in football than from year to one to two and from two to three. I mean, those two years are so important in your developmental growth in this league from a physical and mental standpoint that. You know, as you get older and, and, and you start things kind of just you kind of just start rolling through and it is what it is at that point. And and but those those first couple of years, you got to develop mentally, you got to develop physically and you got to start the, the, the game's got to start slowing down for you. Is being a teacher and take this the right way, if you would, please part partly being a psychologist. I mean, it's not just making sure that the guy gets to the right place at the right time it's not just making sure that he gets off the line of scrimmage the way you want him he's he's going to drop some passes he's got to keep that confidence level high how much is that come into my into my office and lay on my couch kind of stuff um a lot more than people think (laughs) and i think that you know you're not going to say it's half your job but surely you know there's a good portion of it is just keeping keeping the personalities and and who they are genuine but at the same time, allowing them to understand the confidence that they need to play. And, and, and yeah, this guy over here in the papers bashing you, don't worry about that, right? Or this guy on Twitter is over here, heck, well, don't worry about that. Let's just go to work. Let's get back to it and, and let's go. Yeah, I know you made, you made a great three plays and you scored three touchdowns in this game. And everybody telling you're the greatest receiver in the world. Well, what happens next game? When, when something goes wrong, the same people are going to bash you. So you have to be able to communicate through the lines of social media, through the lines of, of the media and, and, and fans and things like that, and just understand that, that the people in this building are the people that you got to be able to trust and, and the people that generally have your best interests at heart. Is the NFL more difficult to make it into the NFL, or is it more difficult to stay in the NFL as a player? I would argue make it. I think that when there's 53 spots, there's 53 spots. And when you're a young guy that doesn't have the mental capacity as a guy who's been in the league eight years, uh, that just understands how everything's going, my first year, every rep, I overthought it every single time. Well, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? Oh, man, I could have done this. Oh, I could have done that. Oh, are they going to cut me because I dropped this pass? Oh, I ran this route wrong and Peyton yelled at me. Man, is he ever going to throw me the ball again? Like, that's what goes through your head as a young player. And as you grow out of that, you're just able to play. And it's easier if you're smart. It's easier if you're confident to to maintain that, I think. But if you're the, the young guy, if you're a young, not drafted in the first three-round guy and things are kind of swimming for you, it can get difficult, you know, and, and you've got to be able to mentally fight through it and you've got to have people around you who are supportive. But uh, I think that sometimes sometimes being young and staying in is, is, is or, or being, a, being able to make it those first couple of years is sometimes in your own head more that you didn't turn into a bad football player overnight, you know. How much has the game changed for wide receivers since you played? It's a ton. Well, they can't hit you anymore. Yeah. I mean, you used to so, be able yeah, to when get you crushed. Off, so when you came off the line of scrimmage with the Indianapolis Colts, what were, refresh my memory, what were the rules back then? What well, they, they, do to they you? still had the five-yard five yard contact right? rule, yeah. you know, but they didn't really do a whole bunch of it. And then they started calling it a little more as, as we got going. People blamed us for it because the Patriots – 
if we're, we're, we're really beating us up for a couple of years in the playoffs and they kind of started calling it after that and, and a lot more, but it's been in the book forever, but the safeties could hit you the line. There was no helmet to helmet and all that. I might have fine, but they weren't doing some of the things they're doing now. And, and uh, you know, and so the, the deal was you went over the middle. You had to be fearless in the middle. You had to understand what was coming and why it was coming. And uh, there was linebackers and safeties were allowed to play football. And I feel like now the, uh, the safety position is a very tough position to play in this league because of the contact zone and where they got to hit you and how they got to hit you. And, and you know, and, and before it was just tee off and smoke you and we'll figure it out later and, you know, that was just that was just the game we played. It's just a different game now. So the receivers have a, a distinct advantage over uh, the DBs, in my opinion. They can't they can't touch you after five yards. They can't really hit you anymore. I mean, it's kind of a good time to be a receiver. In the <laughs> it sure NFL. is. Uh, but it's also a time when there's the the expectations are so high that if you're not catching 85, 90 passes a year and you're the the number one guy, they're going, what the heck's wrong with your game? And that's not fair either. Probably not to a point. And, and there's a lot of factors that determine how many passes you catch. But at the end of the day, that's 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 our world. And and expectations are part of making money. It's expectations part of being an number one guy and that's why when you're looking for number one guys you better we, we you want traits that are number one guy traits which is dominant traits of of guys that that have excellence in their blood and and want it every play and want it when it's crunch time and uh you know when 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 it's fourth quarter who who's the guy that's getting the football and and that's got to be your number one guy and I think that as you see the game progress you're going to see more there's they're going to see more guys that are going to break 10,000 yards receiving over and over and over again. I mean, I know you look back at the rushing yards, you know, and if 10,000 was kind of that mark that everybody said, if you got 10,000, you were a Hall of Famer. And, you know, I think that that mark's going to go up for receivers here where guys are going to guys are going to continue to get higher and higher to be considered a Hall of Fame player just because of the rules changes. For the Eagles receivers who are listening, hello out there. Uh, we, we don't – I know you haven't met them yet. You'll meet them when they start coming in here in April and we get into the OTAs. Um, what kind of coach will you be, Aaron? What, what can these receivers expect from you? Well, I think the big thing, first and foremost, is, is, is a person that understands the game, a person that's going to challenge them to be great every day and compete in practice, compete – compete with themselves, compete with the other guys in the room, and obviously compete against the rest of the guys on the team. That's where it starts. And I think as you as you develop the confidence and, and the competition level to, to be able to go in day in and day out and want to be great, I think that that's where teams become championship teams. And, 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 and that's, that's really number one. You know, a guy that wants to be part of, uh, wants to be part of their lives as far as relationships are. And I think you got to understand, I want to, I want to be involved with them and, and understand who they are outside of football. I think the days of the coach and the players not really knowing each other and who they are outside of the game are over. I mean, I think uh, relationships are really important. And I think just a guy that I just, I'm, I'm going to stress details and stress technique and make sure that, you know, there's, there's no stone that's unturned when it comes to that stuff and make sure that, that we're, we're coaching up the fundamentals and details of the position in a clear, concise way where they understand, like we were saying before, in the fourth quarter of the game, if I say something, it's not a dissertation of why. It's just, hey, let's do this and this. And they're like, I got you, and, and we can move on. So um, that, that, that to me is, is, is the main things that I'm about. And 
Um, can't wait to get to work. You know, I can't wait to to continue to to, to learn this offense as we are over the next uh, few months. And as the guys start to get in here uh, within a few months, then we're able to to get on the field and to get my hands on them a little bit and be able to work with them and enjoy kind of being around them and starting to get to know them and their personalities. Does playing in the NFL bring street cred? Do you think? I hope so. I hope so. You know, just when you look at what what guys are about, I think. I understand what they're going through on a daily basis. And I understand a lot of different things that, that, that someone who hasn't played in the, in the league doesn't quite understand, you know, and, and, and there's days where it's up and there's days where it's down and, and to have somebody in your corner that's been through what you've been through is important. And, and not that I'm going to lower the bar for anybody. I think at the same time, you just expect greatness and you understand that as you come in this building, it is a job and you need to be a pro. And I think someone that's been involved and gone through it as a young person moving into, you know, playing five years and, and being, being in it and understanding how my development was over my first five years, going from probably an immature guy into a guy that was looked at as a leader, even though I wasn't a, even though I wasn't a full-time starter, I was a guy that was a third receiver at best on the team, uh, barring injuries. And 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 I think, but as you look at it, I still was valued as a leader in that locker room. It's why I still have a lot of friends uh, with guys on that team. And and because I treat people the right way and treat them with respect, but understand there's a standard that we're going to live by. And I think that. As long as that standard is upheld, I'm not going to have a problem with anybody. And then finally, how bad did Peyton get up into your crawl? Did he? Did All the time. Yeah? All the time. But, like, did you take it as love or did you take it as, like, how do you take it? Depended on the day. <laughs> uh, no, he, he, was, he was very adamant about what he wanted and why he wanted it that way, and that was every day. And then... You know, as the third, fourth, fifth guy, sometimes you took heat for something that the first or second guy did that maybe he wasn't going to yell at them for. So I understood that. I took I took a little bit of ownership in it. You know, I didn't really get too up or down, like I said earlier. So I don't mind getting yelled at. It's not something that's going to bother me too much. You know, I kind of you take the good with the bad and you take the praise with the, with 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 the yelling and 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 you just look up and and know that we're playing the greatest game in the world and we're getting paid to do it and we're really good at it. So um, I can take a little bit of heat. It didn't bother me, but but he, he, you know, when he was in one of his moods, you just knew it's time to quit the BS and start catching the football and running the routes right and making sure that, you know, you kind of stayed out of the fray. So there was, there was a little bit of understanding to that. Reggie Wayne, Marvin Harrison, Brandon Stokely, uh, wow. What we had a, group, a great man. group. Shoo. We had a great group. How much you learn? You mean you learn right from 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 them? Of course. I mean that that helped you stay in the league for five years. Oh yeah, and, you know, and Troy Walters was there Troy for my Walters, first yeah. three years, and and you know, but guys that as you look at it, and guys that were smart. Troy is coaching. I'm coaching. Reggie Wayne has been involved in coaching. Brandon Stokely's in coaching right now. Troy's dad was a coach. Reggie's yeah. dad was a coach. Um, and, and Brandon Stokely's dad was a coach. So you've got a lot of guys, and Marvin was really smart and understood ball like a coach. So you had a lot of smart players. So we didn't have, there wasn't a lot of discussion. It was, hey, why are you doing this? And a guy would say it, and you just get it. And I think we all fed off of each other. And a day that one guy was down, the rest of the group was able to bring him up. And, and I think that over the course of my five years there, um, 
the lessons I learned were invaluable. And, and there's probably the reason I'm sitting here today, to be completely honest. You've won a Super Bowl. Your pops has won a Super Bowl. You've made a living in the game of football. That's a pretty dang cool life. Well, it's, it's been good, but I got to win one as a coach. Yeah. So, yeah. Where is your ring, by the way? Uh, it's in my house. Okay. So okay. It's at the house. You know, it's, 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 it gets busted out every now and then for functions and things like that. But, um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I like, I'd, I'd like to win one here and, and think I can wear that one around town and be a lot more fun than wearing the old Colts one. We're looking forward. 2020. Let's win one in 2020. Aaron, Matthew Moorhead, Eagles wide receivers coach, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you. Thanks very much to Aaron Moorhead for sharing his life experiences. Looking forward to seeing him working with the Eagles wide receivers this season. Now, off the field, the Eagles have been busy in a lot of different ways. And for cheerleader Kyle Tanguay, well, it's certainly been something that he had never really even dreamed possible could happen. That's because Kyle went outside his level of comfort and in the process became a national story. He auditioned for American Idol, and he was so impressive that the judges on ABC gave him the coveted golden ticket and invitation to Hollywood to perform there. I had a chance to catch up with Kyle as he was preparing from his audition and his success in Washington, D.C. to the big stage of Hollywood, California. Unknown what comes next. It is time now to bring on Eagles cheerleader Kyle Tanguay, who has had quite a golden offseason. Kyle, given the golden ticket and a trip to Hollywood to appear in American Idol, the next round of auditions and Kyle, uh, first of all, congratulations. How are you doing? How's, how is the whole Hollywood experience for you? It's been amazing. It's been so exciting. And I've been so grateful to be able to step outside of my comfort zone yet again and take on another challenge based on I still cannot believe that I made it through. I've been working so hard, and I'm so excited to see what's next on my adventure with American Idol. You go to Washington, D.C., you audition there, uh, and you sing from, of course— uh, I guess one of your favorite songs, Mercy from Shawn Mendes. Please have mercy on me. Take it easy on my heart. Even though you don't mean to hurt me. You keep tearing me apart. Would you please have mercy? Mercy on my heart. Would you please have mercy? Mercy on my heart. How did you decide on that song? And then, look, you last year performed in front of 68,000 people on game days at Lincoln Financial Field. In this instance, you're in a studio, you're in a small environment. Describe the difference in, in pre the feeling of pressure. Absolutely. Uh, that song, I actually just chose something that had, you know, that was in my range, something that I was comfortable in, something that I knew well. Obviously, the nerves in front of the judges, I still had some small mistakes, um, which I'm excited to prove myself in Hollywood and show them that I can, you know, get through a song. As for the meaning, you know, it was just a song. It's an artist that I like. There was no, like, oh, I'm singing this because it means something. I really just like the way it sounded. And as for performing, um, they're, they're, you're right. They're two extremely different scenarios. You know, game day, 68,000 people versus three of you know, music's most acclaimed artists and singers from all over the country. 
Uh, definitely different types of nerves. I would have to say that I was a little bit more nervous for American Idol just because on game day, you know, I'm in my element, I'm in my zone, I'm cheering for my favorite team, and I'm with people that I'm really comfortable around. When I was doing American Idol, it was all singers I'd never met before, and the celebrity judges, that alone is so nerve-wracking. So it's definitely a different type of nerves, but it was they were both amazing experiences, and I'm really glad that I got the experience on the both. Kyle, I thought it was really cool in... Washington, D.C., the cheerleading team came down to support you. And if people don't believe that the Philadelphia Eagles are a team, this is just another example. How much did that mean to you that everybody showed up for to support you? It was the greatest thing that they were there. You know, they were there the first time I ever stepped on the field at the link. And they were there, you know, for yet another adventure, yet another really cool opportunity. I think it just, you're right, it absolutely goes to show that the Eagles all, are all about family. They're all about acceptance. They're all about, you know, having each other's back, whether you're the underdog, whether you're the lead-in. And I think it's really awesome that they were all there and that they got to experience it too because it definitely just, you know, we treated it like game day. It took me back to, you know, those bit, those awesome Sunday games, those Monday night games. And just to be able to have my team, my family there, it was so exciting. And I'm, I think that had they have not been there, the outcome could have been really different for me. They definitely calmed me down and got me really excited to be there. So, Kyle, it's been two weeks since Washington, D.C. Have you been in Hollywood since that time? Not yet. I have not been there. I've been working really hard, and I've been super-duper excited uh, with a vocal coach from my school named Sophie. And I'm really just kind of trying to work out all the kinks in my voice, just like any other performing arts. you got to keep practicing, keep drilling. And I'm hoping that when I get there, you know, everyone's excited and that I can prove to people that I do have what it takes, even though I'm not a professionally trained vocalist. Do you know the song you're going to sing for the next idol? I do not know what song yet. We're still shifting through some different ideas and seeing what's allowed to be aired and stuff, but I know it'll probably be something a lot different than Shawn Mendes. That's what I'm going for. Kyle Tangway, we are all rooting for you. Uh, You are representing the Philadelphia Eagles so well, and your energy, your spirit, your courageousness, all super uh, uh, just admirable. I mean, for a young guy who has never sung before, it is really hard to do. And, you know, I don't think that there's any other organization or group that I'd want to represent while I'm doing it. You know, I take that Eagles passion, that silly spirit with me, and it kind of has, it's letting me go this far, and I'm excited to see where else I can take it. Kyle Tangway, thank you so much for your time. And don't forget, you still have to try out for the Eagles cheerleading team in 2020 and 2021. So don't forget about that. Got it. Absolutely. You know, I've been working hard, doing some conditioning, and I cannot wait to see, you know, who steps up this year and, and what type of rookie class that will be, you know, auditioning. And I hope that I make it back. There's no other way I'd rather spend my next football season. Kyle, thanks so much for joining us here on the Eagles Insider Podcast. Thank you so much. Good luck. I have the coronavirus, and it hasn't been that bad. That's the headline of a story penned by a man named Carl Goldman, who I happened to see a couple of weeks ago as the coronavirus was really starting to infect the United States and all the news organizations from the London Times to the New York Post to the Daily Mail to MSNBC, they all kept featuring Carl Goldman. And every time I saw his image, he was wearing Eagles gear. So I figured, let's reach out to Carl and find out, A, how he's feeling, because we all take the coronavirus very seriously, and then, B, what's his connection to the Philadelphia Eagles? It turns out that it's a significant one, and it's a story you don't want to miss. 
So the coronavirus has certainly been the topic of much conversation in this country and around the world. The spread of the coronavirus. Coronavirus outbreak. Coronavirus emergency. Coronavirus cases. Coronavirus outbreak. As I was looking through all of the coverage, I kept noticing that there was a guy who kept talking about how he was infected with the coronavirus. And and I noticed that he was wearing Eagles hat, Eagles jersey. And, you know, we have this slogan, Eagles everywhere. And in this case, and I'm not making any light of the coronavirus, Eagles everywhere meant quarantined in Nebraska. And so my next guest here on the Eagles Insider Podcast, presented by Lincoln Financial Group, Carl Goldman, who um, has a fascinating story, uh, caught the virus on the Diamond Princess, the cruise ship that was quarantined outside Yokohama for 14 days. He joins us here. Carl, where are you? Where are we speaking to you from? Where are you located? I am in Omaha right now in the hospital, still quarantined. I spent 12 days here in the biocontainment area, which is interesting. And then I, I got downgraded and now I've been moved to a uh, separate area in the hospital that is uh, doesn't have the, quite the same medical attention, but I'm still quarantined and will be here for a while. So are you feeling okay? Do you Are you making progress? I am feeling fine. Uh, I still have a cough, a dry cough that seems to get worse throughout the day. But really, this virus, I would have, if, if I wasn't contagious, which I still am, I would be at work the next day after this. It was a, it was a mild, mild set of symptoms. Unlike a cold, I did not have a stuffy nose, did not have sneezing, did not... Uh, have a lot of mucus in my chest. All I had was a high fever for about eight, nine hours while I was on the plane going back to the States from Tokyo after being quarantined on the Diamond Princess for 12 days along with our crews. And then um, the fever broke about eight, nine hours into it. That was it. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. Any advice you have for people, Carl, on what to do in these times? Absolutely. I would recommend uh, getting a good digital thermometer so that you don't freak out. Um, The thermometer will give you the best uh, indication if you do have the virus or do have something that's a problem, so you're not freaking with every little nose drip or cough. You can check with the digital thermometer. I'm drinking a lot of hot ginger tea because that pulls the body temperature up, and I'm told the virus does not do well in... In, in warm environments. I'm walking a lot, doing a little exercise here in my room. But um, that, that would be the best recommendation would be to do that. I, you know, I'll tell you a funny story because I've been wearing Eagle gear for a long time. I'm good friends with your owner there, Jeffrey Lurie, even though I'm a California boy. And, and uh, my son also uh, is going to grad school at University of Michigan, so I've been mixing it up between my Michigan gear and my Eagles gear. And uh, the nurses here, as they would come in with into my biocontainment unit and their hazmat outfits, would uh, they love the Eagles gear, but they were a little upset here in Nebraska country with the Michigan gear, so they went out and bought me a Husker outfit as well. So now I'm rotating all that. I'm a, I'm a big fan now of, of Nebraska now that I've been here for uh, over two weeks. They're awesome here. Carl, uh, and I'm, I'm chuckling because you you're, you've seem to have just taken the amazing mental approach to this really difficult situation. 
you mentioned your friendship with Jeffrey. I didn't know that when I called your radio station. You own the radio station, KHTS AM 1220 in Santa Clarita, California. Uh, you got back to me the next day via text. How are you friends with Jeffrey, and just how close are you? Do you come to Philadelphia for games? Yes, I do. At least once or twice a year. I've been to both Super Bowls since Jeffrey's owned the team and uh, love the Eagles whenever they're on the West Coast. I'm at all those games, and I know Jeffrey from days right after college when he lived in Los Angeles. We were both uh, single guys in Los Angeles. We played a lot of tennis together and became very good friends over time with that. So, and, and, and so I knew him long before he became royalty in Philadelphia. But he's a great guy, and I'm just so proud of what he's done for the Eagles over the years. And... and um, Love the Eagles. How'd you become a fan, Carl? Well, it, it, I became a fan the day he bought the team. Because we, we were good, we, as I said, we were good friends, and suddenly I, I switched allegiance from the Los Angeles Rams over to the Eagles, and have been rooting for the Eagles ever since. That is such an awesome story. When you're in Philadelphia, can we can we say hello to each other? I'd love to meet you. Of course. And then I, I do want to add that I've written a blog on our website, hometownstation.com, trying to let people understand the virus from, from my perspective and to not quite get into the hysteria that's out there. I'm making lemonade out of lemons. This thing is out of my control, so I try to at least find some humorous side to it to keep my spirits up as well and let everyone not, not feel that there's a sense of panic out there. That, that doesn't need to happen hometownstation.com is where you can go and read Carl Goldman's account of contracting and, dare we say here, defeating the coronavirus. Uh, Carl, thank you so much for taking time out of your day and, and shedding some light on the coronavirus and what people can do, as well as kind of connecting us Eagles fans around the world here. Uh, we are all sharing that bond of love for the Philadelphia Eagles, and certainly uh, your story is is a remarkable one in so many ways. Well, I look forward to seeing you in Tampa in uh, next February. We're going to get there. Carl Goldman, thanks so much for joining us here on the Eagles Insider Podcast. It's time now for today's headlines. What do the names Jermaine Mayberry, Barrett Brooks, Broderick Thompson, Ron Heller, Bernard Williams mean to you? They were the starting left tackles for the Eagles in the 1990s before the team drafted Trey Thomas in the first round of the 1998 NFL Draft. And since that time, the Eagles have had an answer, a Pro Bowl answer at the left tackle position. Now, another transition. After Trey Thomas was done playing for the Eagles in 2008, the Eagles made a brilliant trade acquiring Jason Peters from the Buffalo Bills. And since then, Peters has been a mainstay at the position, making the Pro Bowl seven times as a Philadelphia Eagle. Last April, the Eagles drafted, moving up in the first round, Andre Dillard with the 22nd overall draft pick. The idea is that he would spend the 2019 season learning behind Peters. And that's exactly what happened. Peters played 77% of the snaps. Dillard started three games at left tackle, played well, 
And now the Eagles are ready to turn the left tackle position over to Dillard. The Eagles have given Peters the opportunity to enter unrestricted free agency to see what is out there for him. And while it's very possible that Peters could come back to Philadelphia, because we have seen stranger things happen, we all have to prepare ourselves for the next phase in the Philadelphia Eagles' offensive strategy and personnel that the left tackle position will be going in a new direction. It's something to watch as free agency begins next week and the draft follows in late April. The Eagles making a change at the left tackle position. Jason Peters, the best ever at the position, a future Pro Football Hall of Famer. But now, the Eagles saying that they have confidence in a second-year player with all kinds of athletic ability who has to learn the nuances of the position, and that's what happens when you turn things over and you change the guard at the tackle position. Thanks so much for listening to this Eagles Insider Podcast presented by Lincoln Financial Group. Thanks to Trevor Hayes and Peter Kelly for putting it all together. We thank Aaron Moorhead for all of his time. Great interview there. And of course, we thank you for joining us. If you don't subscribe, please do pass the word. Make sure you provide your feedback. And if you could give us a five-star rating, that would be fantastic. I'm Eagles Insider Dave Spadaro. Thanks for joining everyone. Have yourselves a great Eagles day and fly Eagles fly.